go ahead and pull your Bible out, set it on your lap. Um, I brought with me the scriptures that we'll be turning to this morning, so if you want to write those down in your listening guide, kind of get a head start, that would be helpful. As you're pulling your Bible out, if you don't have one, if you don't own one, uh, we would love to give you one. There uh, are quite a few out in the lobby at the, the Welcome Connect area. Just stop by and take one. Uh, that, would be, uh, that would make us really happy. Matthew chapter 10, John chapter 14, 1 Peter chapter 2, and John chapter 6. Speaking of Bibles, the very first Bible that I remember owning was called the Rainbow Children's Bible. It was a, a King James Version Bible with a children's cover on it. Uh, maybe some of you had this particular Bible. And for the first significant portion of my life, when I thought about Jesus or heard someone talk about Jesus, this is what I pictured. And this is, of course, the scene where the children are coming to Jesus, and what you don't see off to the side is the disciples saying, no, 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 you can't come. And he blesses them. Uh, in 1742, Charles Wesley, a hymnist from England, wrote a song, and the first lines were, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. And I think that this picture must have been what he was looking at when he wrote these words, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. But the thing I ask myself when I look at that picture is why on earth would they crucify this Jesus? I mean, who would want to hurt him? So, so maybe meek and mild is not the only, it's not the only picture definition of Jesus. I mean, that's what we see in Matthew chapter 10. Listen to these words, verse 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. There are three things that I want you to write down this morning on the back of your listening guide. Number one, there is a certain kind of peace that Jesus does not give. There is a certain kind of peace that Jesus does not give. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. And those don't even sound like the words of Jesus to us. In fact, if you had not been reading through the Bible and stumbled across this particular portion of Scripture, you might attribute this saying to something that one of his enemies said. Because in Luke chapter 2, the angels appeared to the shepherds out on, outside of Bethlehem, watching their flocks at night. Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. Acts chapter 10, it says that the gospel, the message of Jesus is a gospel of peace. I mean, even Jesus said that he did come to bring peace in a different section. John chapter 14 He says in verse 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So he says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, but the key word there is my peace. 
he gets to define what kind of peace he is bringing and giving. So if peace means kind of be whoever you want to be and do whatever you want to do, Jesus is not here for that kind of peace. My peace I give to you. My peace I leave with you, he says. He says, I didn't come to bring that kind of peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. And we see this in how he related to the things that the Israelites held most sacred. Remember, the the story of the scripture is that God made a covenant with Abraham. If you will obey me, I will turn you into a great nation and your descendants will be like stars in the sky. And through you, the whole world will know who I am. God reaffirmed that covenant with Abraham's son Isaac and grandson Jacob. Eventually, he remade that covenant with the entire nation of the Israelites through Moses. He leads them into the promised land, affirming that covenant again. I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to drive out all the nations that are currently living in this neighborhood. This whole thing is just going to be yours. But your end of the covenant is worship me only. And you think that that was such a simple thing to do, but they could just not hold themselves together. And so God would send his prophets lovingly, fiercely, prophetically coming, delivering these messages. If you don't worship God alone, bad things are going to happen and and Israel just would never change. So eventually from the north, Assyria comes, wipes out the northern half of Israel. The Babylonians come from the south and capture the southern part of Israel. But God sends his prophets again with messages of, This is what God said was going to happen, but also God is going to redeem you. He's going to bring you back into your land, and he's going to do that through the Messiah, the Savior. So for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, the Israelites are looking for the Messiah. And Jesus comes, and he fulfills hundreds of the prophet's words. But the Israelites don't recognize him. And they didn't recognize him because Jesus was not doing what they thought a Messiah would do. Because they thought it would be easy to follow Messiah when he came. He's just going to say everything we've been saying. He's going to believe everything we've been believing. He's going to do everything that we are going to do. And Jesus said, the things that you think important, I do not think are important. The things that I think are important, you are not thinking that I am important. Like three of their symbols especially. First, the Sabbath. The Sabbath was incredibly important to the Israelites. Not just a day of rest. It was a way that they honored God. If you worked on the Sabbath, they would excommunicate you from the whole city. Like they wanted no part of you if you were going to do any work on the Sabbath. Yet in in the Gospel of Mark, at the very beginning, in chapter 2, Jesus is saying, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. You all have been bowing down to the Sabbath. The Sabbath bows down and worships me. The temple. The temple is where the Israelites would go to relate to God and find forgiveness. And yet, what is Jesus doing? He's offering forgiveness. In fact, he, he, he interacted with a man who was paralyzed. And he said to, to that man, your sins have been forgiven. And the people that heard that, they freaked out. You can't just be offering forgiveness in somebody's house in Galilee. You want forgiveness, you got to go down to Jerusalem and be in the temple. So to prove that he had the authority and the ability to forgive sins, he told that paralyzed man, just get up and take your mat and, and go on home. 
He walked into the temple. It had become a place of business because business needed to happen. People needed to buy sheep and doves to make their sacrifices and to make their offerings. But he said God's house should be a house of prayer. And so he found some rope there in the temple and he started whipping these business owners and turning over their tables and throwing their money everywhere. The Sabbath, the temple, the Torah, which was the law. If you were going to be faithful to God as an Israelite in the first century, you followed the Torah. But in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you have heard it said, and then would quote something from the Torah, but I tell you. I mean, that would be the equivalent of me today saying, you guys have read in the Bible, but what I'm saying to you today He attacked every sacred symbol that they had. Jesus, meek and mild, would just come and blend in. He would come and bless. He would come and encourage. But the fuller picture of Jesus is that is there is a certain kind of peace that he is not interested in giving to you. 1 Peter chapter 2, the, the apostle Peter weaves together three different sections of the Old Testament. It says in verse 6, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, again quoting in the Old Testament, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and, verse 8, again another quote, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. What Peter is saying is that God is building a house and he has delegated that building process to humanity. Always has been doing that. He delegated the responsibility of the tabernacle, the place where God dwelled on earth, to Moses and Aaron and the Levites. Later on to Solomon to build an actual temple in Jerusalem. God is building a house. He's delegated the responsibility to humanity. Humanity has looked at the different stones to make the building, to build the house. Some they set aside as useful. Some they throw away as not useful. This stone is not fit. It's not going to help. It's not sturdy. It doesn't, it's not straight. They throw it away. And what Peter is saying is that the builders of this house have looked at this stone and they said, it's not fit to be a part of this building. It can't be trusted. So they've thrown it aside, but God had chosen that stone, not just to be a part of the building, but to be the very first stone that was laid, the cornerstone where every wall Every dimension takes its direction from that stone. That's Jesus. The builders, the Israelites, they've looked at Jesus and said, no, it's not fit. Not Messiah. He doesn't think like us. He doesn't affirm the things that we want to affirm. He doesn't believe the same things as us. He's attacking things that are special to us. And God is saying, no, that is the cornerstone. And he becomes a stumbling block of offense because some of those people said, well, if if this building is going to be built on that stone, then I don't even want to go into this house. He's offensive. He causes people to stumble. People trip over him. 
And that's what he's saying to the disciples in Matthew chapter 10, which leads me to the next thing I want you to write down. Jesus divides people who are otherwise united. Jesus divides people who are otherwise united. Verse 35, for I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Now, the context of Matthew chapter 10, if you go back and read the rest of this chapter later on, which I would encourage you to do, it would probably only take you five minutes. You'll notice that he's sending out his 12 disciples. Jesus has modeled for them what it means to go and proclaim the kingdom of God. He's gone into villages. He's told about God's kingdom. He's made himself the door to God's kingdom. Now he's sending out the 12. Just go and do what I've done. You go and tell these villages about me, but he's telling them when you get out there and you start talking about me, people are not going to like it. I'm divisive. In fact, I'm so divisive, like a sword, I will split homes. I'll, you'll go into a home, you'll tell people about me, there'll be a father who believes, but a son who rejects. There'll be a mother-in-law who believes, but a daughter-in-law who rejects. This is what's going to happen when you go out there. And he sent us out into the world too. That's how Matthew's gospel ends, with a commissioning. Go into all the nations, baptizing them, teaching them to obey. But when we get out in the world, Jesus is divisive. That's why most of us are not actively bringing people into God's kingdom, because we don't want to be rejected. You know, best case scenario, it's awkward to talk about religion, and it's especially awkward to bring up the J word, Jesus. About a year ago, I was meeting my neighbor for the first time, and we did that thing, like, what do you do? And he told me what he does, and then he said, what do you do? And I told him what I did, and it was like I never said anything. We just glazed right on past being a pastor. If you asked him today, I think he's blocked it out of his memory. He has no idea what I do. It's awkward to talk about Jesus. And it's a good reminder for us today that when we do that awkwardness is not from us. Now, if it is from you and you are rude and you are weird, like maybe you don't talk about Jesus, okay? <laughs> Save it for the, the people who are a little bit kinder and gentler and, you know. But when you are rejected, when you feel that resistance, that's not you. It, it's been this way from the very beginning. He didn't come to bring peace like, what do you believe? Oh, that's great. What do you believe? Oh, that's great. What do you believe? That's great. He says, I cut like a sword. People will fall on one side of me or they will fall on the other. And the third thing I want you to write down. Jesus demands our highest allegiance. Verse 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. When he says worthy, he means fit. Whoever loves their mom or dad more than they love Jesus is not fit to be a disciple of Jesus. Now, depending on your relationship with your parents, you may be like, not a problem. (laughs) 
But then he goes straight to what we hold sacred here in Northwest Houston. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not fit to be my disciple. I mean, you would die for your children. And Jesus says, no, you die for me first. If given the choice between offering your life for your kids or offering your life for me, I go first. Meek and mild Jesus would not make that demand on you. And in case that wasn't far enough, he says, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Meaning, your allegiance to me is greater than your allegiance to your own life. And the disciples were tested on this. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the mob came to arrest Jesus. What did the disciples do? They ran. Peter was tested after that. You know Jesus of Nazareth. No, 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 I don't know him. Yeah, 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 I've seen you with him. No, I don't know him. Yeah, no, you're, you're from Galilee. I, I've seen you. No, I swear to God. I don't know Jesus. The disciples and Peter's allegiance went to saving their own lives instead of him. But Jesus is not an additive that we can just sprinkle into our life to add some religious flavoring. I mean, how many people do we know that that's really what it is? It's like, I know I need some religion. I know I need some faith. I have that in my background. And I don't know about the whole thing, but I just sprinkle that in. And here he so clearly says, what he says saying right here is that our true attendance today in this room is much smaller than the number of people sitting in here. He demands all of our allegiance. He puts his expectations on us and demands that we change. But so many of us want to approach him today in our society and say, you are meek and mild Jesus. Here are my expectations for you. May I change you so that you fit a little more neatly into the life that I am building. He says, no, it's the other way. He says, I am the door. And if there is any part of you that will not fit through that door, then that part of you has to go. And that's easier said than done, at least for me. And this is every area of our life, not just our actions, but even the way that we see the world. We all have opinions. Like I figured you'd want to talk about politics today. So here's my opinion (laughs) on politics. I think that our politicians should only get to serve one term. 
Okay, here's why. Thank you for the amens. Let me, let me, let me lay this, this case out a little for you. Because then they would be public servants, right? They would vote their conscience instead of just telling us what we want to hear. I don't ever want to hear the term, fire up your base ever again in my whole life. And if they just served one term, they wouldn't have to fire up the base because they knew they were going to go back to their real job. And they would have real jobs like the rest of us. They wouldn't be career politicians. I think there's a lot of great things about it. I know there are holes in it. I don't need to talk about it afterwards, by the way. I don't need any emails. Right? But this is my opinion. When we start talking about politics and conversations, I bring this up. So I'm announcing my candidacy for uh, the next election. I promise I will only serve one term, unless I like it, and then, of course, I will serve another term. <laughs> but these are my opinions. This is the way I see the world. I think that this is a good idea. Right? But, of course, given the choice between the allegiance and this random political opinion I have and to Jesus, well, that's an easy decision for me. But there are some opinions that we have and views of the world that are much harder to give our allegiance to. Because most of us are just leading and going based on how, the, how we feel or what our instinct or our intuition is. The people of Israel did this in the Old Testament. Because after King Solomon, they literally lost their copies of the scripture. For generations, they just did what seemed right to them. They did have a righteous king, eventually came along. His name was Josiah. The temple had come under disrepair, and so they decided to renovate it. So they called Chip and Joanna out of Waco and sent them to <laughs> Jerusalem. They shiplapped that temple. <laughs> It was something like that. I'm confused about the Hebrew wording. But while they're renovating the temple, they, they stumble across God's law written down. And the king, King Josiah, because he's righteous, his heart is just broken. He's like, are you kidding me? These were the expectations. We have not been doing any of this. For hundreds of years, they just did what seemed right to them. That's what most of us are doing. Many of us have lost our copy of God's law. I mean, we haven't literally lost it. We know where it is, but our allegiance goes to the way we see the world. It goes to our views. It goes to our opinions. I mean, there are some opinions that we have that there are no stakes. Of course, we would give those up. And there are others that are more valuable to us like our politics or like our parenting or like our decision making. By the way, this is how racism is allowed to persist in the church. Because some of us are like, I'm not racist. I don't, I don't say these words. I don't, I don't say this. I don't do this. But if we're not letting Christ conform the way that we see the world, our inner thinking, our inner life, then nothing is changing. You start getting into some of those things, you can see how our allegiance would go to our opinions instead of Jesus. Meek and mild Jesus will just always tell you what you want to hear. He's just glad you're here. The real Jesus says, no, you decide. 
You decide right now. Are you in or are you out? Don't put your hand to the plow and then turn around. That Jesus is a little bit harder to deal with. So we just paint pictures of him that make us feel good. John chapter 6, Jesus is saying difficult and hard to hear types of things. Like eat my flesh and drink my blood. (laughs) And after saying these things, it says in verse 66, this is how I'm able to remember this particular verse because it's John 666. (laughs) After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. That's why I'm able to say, I think, with confidence that our church attendance is actually smaller than it is today. Because there are some of us, and on some days it's me, that think I can't give that kind of allegiance and loyalty to someone I can't see. That's that's pretty demanding. So why would anyone do it? Why would anybody be led by such a demanding person instead of just doing what seems right to us because of what he says in Matthew chapter 10 verse 39 whoever finds his life will lose it and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it so he makes his demands and he gently lays down his gauntlet stay with the status quo and risk losing your life Or risk losing your life and find yourself. Find your life. They would have never crucified meek and mild Jesus. But meek and mild Jesus will not actually lead you into the kingdom of God. This is the Messiah that God has sent to us. So am I in or am I out? Let's pray.